your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts for our Bible reading this morning. We are in Acts chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. And a little bit of a lengthy passage, although I heard not nearly as long as what Pastor Leachman read last week. We're going to read to verse 35. Chapter 15, verses 6 through 35. And as is my custom, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them, among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I'll return, and and we'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things, known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those than these necessary things. They abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. Now when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. 
Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I've been ready for this sermon for two weeks. <laughs> um, I noticed that this week while I was um, doing some sermon preparation, it felt like I needed to move on and realize I hadn't preached this one because I missed last Sunday um, with illness, and as most of you know. And uh, having two weeks to work on a message <clears throat> is kind of dangerous sometimes, I've found. So I really just pressed on and... Uh, so to a degree, I kind of feel like preaching the next message because I feel more prepared almost for that somehow. But we don't want to miss this. This is a very important passage for the church. Uh, it really represents the first council the church has convened uh, in its history. And we want to spend some time on it. It will certainly take more than just this Sunday to do that, but we want to focus on its main intent, its main teaching today, uh, and then we're going to press on to some of its application and implications for the church, for our message, and for the gospel, uh, and particularly with regard to uh, where we stand as Gentiles, uh, because this letter is really written, and the conclusion is really written for us, uh, who are outside of Judaism. But it also has ramifications on those within the Jewish camp as well. Uh, and very importantly, it's going to be uh, the foundation for really what uh, Paul has to deal with as he goes out to the Gentile churches. We're going to see a lot of this uh, council's uh, conclusions being brought forth in the book of Galatians. I would love to tell you that once the church did this, that this issue never came up again. But it comes up all the time. Even to this age, these same questions are still being brought into the church. And you would think that between the teachings of Christ, between the testimony of the conversion of Cornelius and the other Gentiles within the early church and this council, that this issue would have been quickly resolved and not reared its ugly head ever again. But the fact is, is that men haven't, don't change. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. There will always be those who want to enter into the liberty that Christ has afforded the church and seek to bring that under bondage uh, to their will more than certainly anything else. There, it's certainly not God's will, uh, for God has uh, called us to liberty. And we're going to see a lot of Galatians reflected uh, into this passage. And so we have an opportunity to see what happens uh, when the church is confronted with something, what is the uh, perspective that we want to take and the, the examination of uh, differences? At this point, we're not going to say one's right, one's wrong, although obviously that's going to be the case. But what happens when you come into a church and one person says one thing and one person says another? We're not talking about the color of the carpet or the... Uh, Choir robes, that's the old one. We don't have a choir robe, let alone robes. We don't have a choir. So, um, 
we're not talking about those areas of opinion, but rather in doctrine, that we do not relegate that to opinion. And I think that is where we have gotten to in our day, uh, that we are afraid to say that's right and that's wrong uh, in the arena of faith. That we more typically will say, well, uh, that has merit, uh, but I don't really feel like that's where I want to go. And that kind of wishy-washy response is nowhere to be found in God's Word. When it comes to our doctrine and our practice as a church, um, there's, there's no gray area. There is right and there is wrong, and the Spirit will lead us uh, through His Word and through His work uh, into truth. And that's the promise of God, is that He will lead us into truth, and we trust in Him. So before we look into His Word of truth, let's ask Him for His help, shall we? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us and for the opportunity to open Your Word this morning to do so with a confidence, not in our own ability, but in your work in us, your presence in us by your Spirit. That you have promised to lead us in the truth. That it is incumbent then upon us to respond to that truth and to believe it, to bring it into our very lives and live it. And you will help us in that. From you comes the power, from you comes the wisdom. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you even this hour. That you might do your great work in us. Not to our praise or comfort or glory, but to yours. That you might be exalted. Not only in the teaching today, but in its living in the days to come until your return. We thank you for your help. We are dependent upon it. We rejoice in it. And we pray that you might find us always asking for it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, little issue rises up in Antioch. Not in Jerusalem. It happened up in Antioch. Jerusalem had already taken some measures because of Cornelius and the interaction with with uh, Peter, and Peter's re- re- telling them what happened, uh, recording it there. And so there was some notion and certainly some acceptance of the fact that the Gentiles have been opened up to the gospel uh, as well as to the Jewish nation. Uh, and now, though, up in Antioch, this has been where the Gentiles apparently are becoming almost and mi- probably the majority. Certainly in many of the uh, churches that Paul established in Asia Minor there in his first missionary journey, um, that would more than likely be the case, that the majority were Gentiles. And now we have it coming to bear where here came some men from Jerusalem who claimed some authority and walk, walked into a predominantly Gentile church, I would have, at least very close to being uh, a majority Gentile church in Antioch, is saying, what's going on here? Why aren't you guys keeping the law? Let's start off by circumcising all of your men. Of course, Paul and Barnabas aren't going to have it, and uh, they are not intimidated by anybody from Jerusalem. Can you imagine Paul ever being intimidated by just about anybody? I mean, he's the guy who writes, I was a Pharisee, the Pharisee. I was taught by the best. Um, I'm not the Lord on the road. Uh, what do you got? What are you going to bring to the table? <laughs> so Paul's not... At any weight, 
intimidated by these guys. He's going to confront them. Barnabas, similarly, he's of the priestly order. And so we find a Levite and a Pharisee ready to confront the, the men coming from Jerusalem. And, and it, surprise, surprise, it becomes a heated debate. Paul is passionate about this. Barnabas is, are passionate about this fact. That there is no way that this can be required of the Gentiles. For we come to God by grace through faith and not of works. And that passage in Ephesians is the testimony of Paul everywhere he goes. You come to God. God, is, by his grace, has brought to you the message of deliverance. And now by placing your faith into that provision, uh, this is how you receive salvation. And there is no uh, work to accomplish. There's no activity of your body that needs to accompany this. It is simply the placing of your faith in Jesus Christ, his completed work. This is all that is necessary. The act of baptism is a symbolic one following that. It is a public testimony. It is not an aspect, really, of your salvation. It is more of your sanctification. You're setting yourself apart for God. But to become God's, to be filled with the righteousness of Christ, requires faith. In the work of God's grace. So now, to Jerusalem it goes. And the gathering of the apostles, the elders of the church, which are two different groups at this point, already we have developed. Remember, we are probably 15 to 20 years into the church age. Uh, so these men have been around for a little while. Uh, and so uh, we know that it was almost 12 years that Paul was, that Saul was in Tarsus before Barnabas found him. They spent some time in Antioch before they were called. He had the entire first missionary journey. They returned back to Antioch. They were there a long time. And so the likelihood that the church is probably about 20 years old is pretty strong. And so by this point, we have apostles and distinguished from them are elders. Among the elders of the church, we find one of the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and who is actually the leading the church eldership. Distinct from the apostles, the apostles didn't take on that task. They didn't take on that responsibility, um, and uh, we rarely find that situation. Rather, they recognize the church needs to have its uh, authority structure, that our responsibility is much broader than one church in one community, that the apostolic re responsibilities were widespread. So we have the elders and the apostles gathered together here. This should be distinct in your minds from the seven that were chosen to wait tables in the distributions that we associate often with the role or the office of deacons. These are a different group. And so gathering together the leadership of the church, both the apostles and the elders, come together. And they are going to... Discuss this issue, and lest you think that this was just them coming together to rubber stamp something, Luke tells us very quickly that there was quite a bit of dispute, that there was not unanimity here, there was not one mindedness at the beginning, but there was some real back and forth that some had very strongly committed to Judaism because that's all they've ever known. And you have equally strong as another position that recognizes and understands the power of the grace of God. And, and they're going to have to resolve these things. And finally, uh, Peter stands up. 
the senior statesman, if you will, <laughs> which is, you say, why do you laugh, Pastor, when you say that? It's really hard for me to say that Peter's the senior statesman, because back in the Gospels, he was the, what, senior foot-in-your-mouth guy. I mean, he was always saying things he shouldn't be saying, you know? And, I mean, this is the guy Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Uh, don't you tempt me with that kind of stuff. And so the guy who was once the foot-in-the-mouth guy that uh, blurted things out and uh, actually used that same mouth to deny our Savior is now the senior statesman for the church. Isn't God's grace wonderful what he can do with people? Um, boy, if Peter isn't a testimony of the fact that God uses our weaknesses, I don't know what is. Uh, it's just incredible. So he stands up and... Uh, when Peter stands up, by this point, he's getting to be an older guy. Okay? Um, he stands up and he says, listen, a while back, uh, God picked me. I don't know why, but he picked me. He wanted me to be the one to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Maybe of all the reasons he picked me was for this purpose right here today. Essentially. God was at work Years ago. Do you remember? A long, long time ago. This is not something new. This is the, what's new is really these men trying to make less of Christ and more of Judaism. And years ago, God, through me, um, opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Let me just remind you of what happened. That God changed their heart. And that is fundamentally what Christianity entails, is a change of heart. We're going to talk a lot about that over the next week or two, really, but it begins today. That is what is entailed. All the activity of Christianity, um, you can engage in all that activity. Uh, you can be, try to keep the Old Testament laws, the Ten Commandments, as much as you want uh, you could try to keep the Levitical law and, and sanctify yourself into it. You could try to keep all the food laws and ceremonial laws. Um, but uh, ultimately, without a changed heart, none of that means anything. And in fact, you could be on your way to hell while still trying to live out this activity called Christianity. When God calls us to have a changed heart, God knew their heart. He knew that they trusted in him. That, that then the believers heard the word and believed. He knew that their heart has been transformed before they had committed any acts of righteousness. And that is what is key. God looked on the heart of those Gentiles. And before any of those Gentiles could commit any acts of righteousness, before they could do anything to demonstrate their faith, um, God, because he knew what was going on inside of them, in their hearts, immediately <laughs> immersed them in the Holy Spirit and gave them the Holy Spirit. He knew their hearts. Wham! They believe in their heart. They are trans transforming their heart and giving it to God. They're surrendering it to, to the work of Jesus Christ. They are by faith receiving the grace of God. And so right now, before any acts of righteousness, before keeping any laws of man or of God, they receive the Holy Spirit. And I love this. He says, uh, just like he did to us. 
That's what God did to us. What he did to us, he did to them. Before they could ever commit any acts of righteousness, he saw their heart. And he acknowledged that heart. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Thus, as they surrendered themselves to God, God came in and purified them, and in that pure state received the Holy Spirit, and they were able to speak in tongues, not for their benefit, but for the benefit of Peter and the men who are with him, that they might see the evidence that God makes no distinction. All are saved the same way. There's no inside track to God. There's no back door. There are no second classes um, of Christians. There's just one Savior, one means of salvation, and this Peter wants to point out. And hopefully we can agree with that statement. It is a heart issue. It is one that all men uh, come to Christ the same way. That there is not one means of salvation in this country and in a different culture, there's a different means to it. There is one, one way, and only one. Which might seem very narrow, but it is the means that God has accomplished, and we must recognize it for what it is. It is the only way to satisfy all the requirements of God, not only His holiness, justice, uh, His Righteousness, but also his love and his goodness, his grace, his mercy, um, to satisfy all the requirements of who God is and what he possesses uh, required this means. And we should marvel at the fact that there was any means. And not gripe about the fact that there's only one way. We should marvel at that there was any way to save us, to save man. Praise him that he found a way, the way. Because it's certain none of us could have come up with any way to meet all the demands of that. So Peter stands up having established the foundation of what salvation really is. Salvation is a transforming of the heart where we surrender to God. God then comes in by the blood of Jesus Christ and purifies that heart. We didn't make it pure. We surrendered it to God so that he could make it pure. So even that act of faith, as Paul says in Ephesians, even the act of faith itself is a gift of God. That is that we don't generate it. Um, Men can't make more faith. We are possessive. We don't develop it. We don't uh, work to uh, create it. Uh, We can strengthen it. We can increase it by, even then, we don't really increase our faith. We really just need to trust in God and direct that faith so God says faith is a gift of God. He's given it to all men. All men trust something or someone. So we surrender that heart to God and say, we're going to trust you. And then God comes in, cleanses, purifies that heart. And now we have a relationship with God based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't claim any work in that. Surrendering is not work. If anything, it's an unwork. It's a non-work. I'm going to stop working. I surrender. I give up. I give you my heart. Take it. Do it. Do. And those that want to make believing or trusting God or uh, coming to God as a work of faith, 
has, has that somehow exercising faith as a work um, have done a disservice to it. Uh, it is not one of the works that we are not saved by. It is not a work at all. It is a non-work. It is a surrender. I give in. I accept what you have to offer, knowing that I am nothing to give back in return, but a very frail, small, short life to serve you with. So having established that foundation, Peter now takes it to the issue at hand. All right, that's how we all come to Christ. That's the testimony of history. Uh, That's the evidence that God has put out there for us to consider. Now, verse 10. Now, therefore, based upon all that, I have a question for you, Peter says. Why do you test God? Whoa. That's a scary idea. Why are you testing God? By doing what? How are we testing God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why are you trying to add to the work of Christ? Was it not sufficient? Don't you recognize that what you're doing is that you're testing the patience of God? That God, by His grace, has done all the work and has provided a means for us to be saved. He has done it all. He has completed it once for all, we sang. Right? Kind of important song today. Once for all. That, that He has done it. He has accomplished it. And I have nothing that I have to add to that. But as soon as we start wanting to add to the work of God by our activity, that somehow this is how we achieve a right relationship with God, uh, we insult Him. We are testing God. His patience. We're saying to God, Christ wasn't enough. And how many times do you think God is going to tolerate you telling him that before he says, if he's not enough, then you're not one of mine. Peter says, how can you test God this way? What are you doing? You're taking people who have been freed from sin and putting them into bondage. You're putting a yoke Oh, I forgot to bring the yoke. We have a little yoke hanging on the wall over there. Um, I was going to bring it over. It's all wet anyway. It was sat in the snow. It would have been disastrous for me to put it on somebody's neck. Um, it would have been William anyways. So. We have God's work to purify our hearts, to cleanse us. And then what do we want to do as men? We want to put this yoke around our neck so that who can steer us? It's not God's yoke. It's not so God can work in your life. It's not that God can direct in your life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He's the, the purpose of the yoke is to put you into a, a work environment where you can be forced into a labor for Christ or for someone. In this condition, it's not Christ because the Spirit is the one who leads a surrendered heart into the service of God and that is how we serve Him. No yoke other than our love for Christ. So these want to put them into bondage. And (laughs) not uh, a bondage that they're good at. They're putting them under bondage in something that they couldn't keep themselves. And this Peter wants to point out extensively. It says, We 
couldn't carry that yoke. Our fathers could not bear that yoke. Why are you putting on anyone else? Fundamentally, the yoke of the law was not about saving men directly. Indirectly, yes. It was about teaching men about sin. That was what it was for. It was to show men that you can't meet the lowest standard of heaven, which isn't really a standard of heaven. You can't meet this standard on earth, um, and it's not the qualifications to get to heaven. You have to meet these laws. Um, it was just a minimum social standard law. Um, there was a couple of them that had heavenly implications, certainly, uh, you know, you're not going to do anything on the Sabbath. You're going to remember, keep it holy. You're not going to profane my name. I have no other gods before me. And so we certainly have some directed toward the divine. Uh, but most of them are social laws with regard to each other, not really a lot about heaven. Uh, and you couldn't keep those. You couldn't keep the religious laws. You couldn't keep the food laws. Um, you think you do now, but you don't. And Jesus Christ already condemned the Pharisees for breaking the law by creating other laws to excuse themselves from breaking the actual law. Says, well, none of us are bearing that load. No one has ever been able to carry it. We've all failed. And the purpose of the law was to teach us that we are sinners and that God is righteous. Not to save us from that sin. It wasn't to keep us from sinning. It was to point to our sin. Aha! There it is. You're a sinner. Oh, man, now what? Go sacrifice. And the sacrifices themselves, the bull and bulls of goats couldn't take away sin. The Hebrews tells us that. Why? Because, well, we have to keep doing it day after day, year after year. We have to keep doing these sacrifices. They weren't sufficient they were pointing to one, and by participating that, you were signifying that you were agreeing that God, there had to be a shedding of innocent blood for my sin. And you were making a statement of trusting God that one day there would be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ. But the law itself was not intended to save anyone, but rather to teach men about their sin, that they might seek out salvation from God. So Peter asked, why then do we have to have it today? Why put that yoke on us? We couldn't bear it. Its purpose has been already accomplished in our lives. These people don't need that burden on them. You know why? Because they already recognized their sin. They already brought their heart and surrendered it to God. And God already purified it. And they are now their vessels filled with the righteousness of Christ. Why do they need the law? Sin has been destroyed in their life. Why burden them with teaching them that they're sinners? They already knew they were sinners and they would never have come to Christ. The purpose of the law has already been accomplished in them. They now have liberty and they have the sin nature put to death in them. The license of Christ has been imputed, poured into them. Uh, we, still have, we still sin. I don't want you to think that we have a teaching of sinlessness. We still get tripped up by this corpse that we won't, haven't buried yet. Um, we will one day. One day it'll be buried. But right now we carry around a corpse with us. 
And it influences us like a corpse influences people if you don't bury it. It stinks. It looks bad. It's kind of disgusting. Um, that's your sin nature. It hasn't been buried yet. It will be one day. It's not going to heaven with you. Let me put it like that. So we have a dead thing that we have floating around us and sometimes we let it influence us too much and we sin. But we have power over that sin. Christ has given us power not to sin that we didn't have before. So why, since sin has already been crushed, because, since the hearts have been purified, since Christ's righteousness has been poured out on them, why in the world are we going to burden them with a taskmaster to teach them about sin? That's not, we couldn't bear it. They don't need to bear it. We have this liberty in Christ. What do we believe? Verse 11, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And it's fascinating that Peter switches it around. He actually says, they're definitely saved. Do you notice the word order here? It's really important in the Greek. Um, he doesn't say that they are saved the same way as us. He says, we are saved the same way as they are. In Peter's mind, there's no doubt that the Gentile is saved. The question at heart for Peter is, are we saved who choose to keep the law and follow Jesus? We are the ones in doubt. But we believe that we are saved the same way as they are. They trusted in nothing but Jesus Christ. And the fear for Peter, I'm convinced, and for Paul, is that many of the Jews trusted in Jesus and the law. That they tacked on, excuse me, <coughs> some of their own righteousness to the work of Christ. And that's why it is vital that Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Why? Because none of the stuff that I learned as a Pharisee and 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 touching the law, none of that was worth anything. I counted as dung so that I could receive Christ. And this is the danger point for many Jews is that they kept the law and thought they had a, some self-righteousness as well as now adding Jesus' righteousness. And Peter says, no, the Gentiles had no concept of self-righteousness because they knew they were lawbreakers. It's you and I that are having the problems because we think that we have some self-goodness to bring to the table. And that puts us in jeopardy. And so what do we believe? We believe that we, were sa we are saved just like they are. That's how we can be saved. It's not by bringing any of our own self-righteousness to the table, but simply by pouring ourselves out and saying, I have nothing. I have nothing but sin. Here it is, garbage. That's all I got. You still want me? God says, I'll purify you. But you see, the pharisaical Christian comes and says, um, well, I need you to take away my sin. Um, and certainly, you know, that's two-thirds of my life. And I've got this third here. I've been keeping your law really well. See, I'm circumcised. I keep the food laws. I don't. So this part, I'm sure you don't have to touch. And they forget what Isaiah said. All your righteousness, self-righteousness, is like filthy rags. 
God doesn't want them. He doesn't want your self-righteousness. They're disgusting to him. So we don't burden with these. We have to get saved the same way as they are. In Peter's mind, no doubt they are saved. Some doubt over whether, you know, if we are testing God by trying to say Christ wasn't enough, um, we're the ones in trouble, not the Gentiles. So, they respond. Paul and Barnabas add the current work of God among the Gentiles. Uh, James stands up and says, okay, we're gonna, um, he's going to quote some scripture from the Old Testament that attests to the fact that God's intention all along was that salvation would be for all men. We're really going to look at that more next week. I want to take us really to the concluding things. What did they decide? Well, they decided that uh, we are not going to burden them with other laws, but we are going to have a... <coughs> excuse me. Not another law. We're going to have some guidelines for them. Here's some guidelines for your life. And brethren, these guidelines are excellent. And they have very little to do with the law. But they have a whole lot to do with who you were before Christ. You ready? Here they are. Uh, we're, I'm going to jump down to verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them too. And here we go. Abstain from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. You might say, well, isn't that part of the law? And many commentators that you will talk about will go back, and when he references the, the, that the Moses has been read in the synagogues around the world, uh, and so there's some contact with it, that that's referring to the Levitical law. And they go to a book of Leviticus, they cross-reference you to Leviticus for this passage of not eating things strangled, not eating things offered to idols, polluted by idols, not eating, drinking blood. Uh, and then from sexual immorality. Uh, I don't agree that any of that has to do with Leviticus. Moses wrote more than just the law. Roses, Mo Moses, Mo Roses. <laughs> oh. Singing in the rain did that to me. All right. Um, Now I can think of Moses supposes the toes are roses. Moses supposes erroneously. Um, so Moses wrote more. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So just because he references Moses being read in the synagogues doesn't mean he's talking about the Levitical law. In fact, the whole text talks about not the law. We're not going to put the law on these people. We're not going to hang it around their neck and try to control them that way. Because controlling sin isn't done by the law anymore. We live, and you've heard me teach this multiple times, we live above the law. The law of Christ. We live on a righteousness that says murder is an option because I don't hate. Immorality is an option because I have chosen not to lust. We operate on that level. The Ten Commandments... That's kind of mediocre, isn't it? Compared to what we've called to. Covet other people's stuff? I hate stuff. Why would I covet their stuff? My home is there. I tolerate stuff. Coveting doesn't become an issue when contentment is your goal. 
So, what were they talking about, Moses? And why these four issues? Well, first of all, they knew the Gentile world. And here we go, very quickly. Abstain from immorality. Why? Because in Genesis, God's design was that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave him to his wife, and those two should be one flesh. That the fleshly aspect of relationships between men and women belongs within the sanctity of a marriage. How did the Romans worship? They went to their temples and they slept with prostitutes. That's how they worship. If you go up to the Athens today and you go up to the Acropolis and you go in and you see the great big building that everyone talks about, the, that they're restructuring uh, the Parthenon, and you see the Parthenon up there, across the courtyard, over there, are the baths and the housing for the prostitutes. Right across the courtyard to the west of the Parthenon. This is where you would have gotten your prostitute so that you could go worship your God by sleeping with her. The Moses we're talking about here is not the law of Moses, but Genesis Moses. It said this is God's design. That this kind of physical intimacy should be reserved and must be reserved within the confines of a relationship between a husband and his wife. Or wives. Do that out there. And so refrain from sexual immorality. Leave off that kind of worship and form your homes and your flesh into the design that God made from the beginning before there was even sin. And let this be the standard within your church. Secondly, Things offered polluted by idols. Things polluted by idols. Well, we know that our God is a jealous God, yes? How long ago has that been? That wasn't defined by the law. That has been God's determination through all time. I and the Lord, you'll serve me alone. All other entities are false gods. This has nothing to do with the law. This is to do with becoming monotheistic. What were the Gentiles like? They were not, uh, well, many of them were paganistic, but, but most of them had many, many, many gods. By the way, the atheists of the Roman Empire were Christians. They considered Christians atheists um, because they didn't worship all the gods. And so you, if you don't believe in the gods, you're an atheist. <laughs> Wrap your head around that one a little bit. No, I believe in the one true and living God. Just one God? Monotheism was radical in that time period. In Judaism, um, this is what defined Judaism distinctly from all the other religions. Um, even down in Egypt, there was a, a, a plethora of gods. 
Everywhere they went, there were many gods, whether you made them by your little hands out of stone or metal or something, um, or painted them, or, or whether you worshipped the sun, or, or whatever it was. There were all these other gods. And what distinguishes the people of God is their monotheism, that there is one living God. I will not involve myself in the false gods of my people that I was saved out of. I will not go there. I will not participate in that which is the worship of anything but the one true and living God. And this is for every culture. This works for every people group who have ever come to know Christ. It works for my people group. You know, they used to worship trees. They used to dance around trees and worship them and have blood sacrifices to them. And that's, they danced around them and all night and had fires and burned themselves and that's my heritage. I have no interest in reviving it or keeping it alive. None. Zero. I have one God. And I don't want to participate in things that are polluted by other gods. I don't want there to be any cloudiness in anyone's mind when they look at my life of who I'm serving. I serve the one true and living God, period, end of discussion. I don't serve the God of wealth. I don't serve a God of witchcraft. I don't serve the gods of my forefathers. I don't serve them. I serve one God. And anything in my life that confuses that issue needs to be eradicated immediately. And that is what they are teaching. Get rid of anything that looks like you might still be an idolater. That you are still worshiping their gods plus Jesus. That is exactly what got Israel in biggest trouble with God. Is that they did what was right in their own eyes and they went after other gods on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and on Saturday they showed up at the synagogue to worship that God. God says, that's disgusting. I'm getting rid of you. You're going off... Your babies are going to be slaughtered. Your women are going to be raped. And you're going to be hauled off naked to Babylon. That's what God thinks of messing around with the idols of this world. There should be nothing in your life that, rem- that muddies the clarity of worshiping only God. And so the testimony should ring true. Well, and this is going to come up in Romans, you know, do I eat this meat that's been offered to idols? Well, if the person who's offering it to you knows that, then no. We know the idol isn't anything, but to them it's something. And there should be none of your activity that muddies that. There should be absolute clarity to everyone around you that you don't serve entertainment, you don't serve money, you don't serve those false gods of your society, you, don't, you serve only the one true and living God, you don't serve yourself. <laughs> That's probably the biggest God of our age now. Um, we serve the one true and living God. And nothing in your life can be spotted from that. I don't care how connected your culture or your life is to it. It cannot be. Um, we don't worship the family. We worship God. I see a lot of family worship in Christian communities. 
I'm pretty sure my Bible says that you have to love God more than your family. That compared to your love for God, people are going to look at your relationship with your family and say, why do you hate your family so much? Do they say that about you? Why do you hate your family so much? Because that is a declaration of really saying, you love God a lot. Because compared to how you live for God, you hate us. Oh, that that would be our testimony. You worship none but God. And all the old things of your life and your culture and your society that is polluted by this worship of other things and other beings that some, most of them don't exist need to be out of your life. There should be a clarity that you serve the one true and living God. And this has nothing to do with the law. This goes all the way back to Genesis. Before there was law. Even before there was Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? Leave your father. Leave his idols. Get away from him to a land I'll show you in good time. Set yourself apart to me. Are you set apart to God? And then the last one, which really this is two, but it is the same thing. Keep yourselves from strangled and from blood, um, which is pretty much the same thing. And again, we are not talking about the Levitical law. I know your cross-references mostly are to Leviticus in your Bibles and your commentators, but we are not talking about the Levitical law. We are talking about the post-flood only law given rule, given to Noah for all mankind. And it is principled not upon the law, but upon this simple fact that God says life is in the blood. So when you eat meat, and God commanded Noah to eat meat, and he commanded Israel to eat meat, you could not be an Israelite and a vegetarian or vegan. You couldn't do it. Because you had to eat meat before the Lord. That's off my chest. Okay. So what does God tell Noah? He says, well, for the first time you're allowed to eat meat, but don't you dare eat it with the blood in it. And we're not talking about having a rare steak. That's not what we're referring to. We're talking about killing an animal in such a way that its blood stays in its body. Rather, which is done by strangulation. Rather, you slit the throat, you drain the blood out, and you let it drain on the ground. Why? Why does it need to drain out on the ground? Interesting, God has a very different view of the earth in terms of dirt than you do. That it, its purpose, one of its purposes is to observe the shed blood. And innocent blood that is shed, it says the earth cries out to God. That's what God said about Abel's blood that was spilled by Cain. The earth told me about it. So we kill our animals with an act of violence and we drain out their blood because, God says, life is in the blood. It has nothing to do with Leviticus. It goes all the way back to Noah. As your forefather... Yes, you are all related to him. Great, 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 great. Go back. I don't know. How many generations it takes to go back? 4,000 years? 5,000 years? But he's your forefather. 
And this is the rule post-flood, is eat meat, but make sure by an act of violence you drain out the blood before you eat it. When you eat meat, you're not eating life. The life is in the blood. You've drained it out on the ground. And this is the requirement. Again, it has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with what is it? What, what are we teaching? We're teaching something very precious about blood. Why? Because life is in the blood. And that is something that God has given to us. And by not drinking blood, we are signifying that we recognize our life comes from God and not from this blood. It's not from what we eat that we live. It is by God that we live. And the definition of life, by biblical terms, is the blood. When is a human a human? When they have blood. The blood is flowing through. That tissue is no longer tissue. It is life. When there's blood, there's life. And to honor life, we drain the blood out. We do not consume it. Recognizing God as our creator. And it is upon him that we are dependent for life. What did the pagans and the idolaters do in their day? This was a common practice, is to drink blood. Not just of the Romans and the Greeks, but of many cultures. And God tells us, you're not to do that. Don't you drink the blood. And we're not talking about the ajus in the meat. We're talking about what courses through their veins that we drain that out. And by doing so, we're recognizing that life is coming to me by violence against life. And this is really the result of the flood. And that we really depend upon God for life. He's the author of life. And so these requirements are not about the Levitical law or keeping of it. It goes all the way back to Genesis, which is Moses, that is read in the synagogues. And uh, by it, they recognize that um, these are principles that everyone who trusts in the one true and living God lived by. Not that we're earning our salvation, but we're making a declaration that we are not like them. And again, they did not impose these as a law. They said, if you keep these four, you're doing well. Does that sound like a law? No. If it was a law, there would be consequences if you didn't keep them, right? <laughs> right? There's a penalty. If you look at any law, if you break the law, there's a penalty. Uh, otherwise, it's just a suggestion. And that's essentially what this is. This is a recommendation. And so, if you drink blood sometime in your life, you know, don't go, you know, oh no, you know, um, I lost my salvation. No. <laughs> What is the focus of their attention? Live in such a manner that there is a clear distinction between you and what you were. Here's you in Christ. Here's you without Christ. Live in such a way that all the world can see the difference. That there's only one God in your life now. That you are done with those lesser things. 
that you honor him as the author of life for you. And that you recognize that he has designed you to have this intimate relationship with another and it preserves that within the relationship of a husband with his wife. That mystery that speaks of the mystery of the triune God. How two can become one. I don't get it. Yet they are three one. And so we have this very simple instruction. There's no law to keep but you have a testimony to establish. And that testimony means that you know who you were. And you know how those who don't trust in Christ live. And you claim to be something different. So there should be some difference. You claim that Christ has done eternal work in your life. There should be some difference. You know what people are like and who they serve and what they chase after, how they behave. You know what they are like. You were once one of them. Now, you choose, you claim to be a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. So distinguish yourself. Even to the point of having your own family say, why do you hate us? And how can you reject how, what we were and how you were raised? And your answer is, easy. I have accepted Jesus as my Savior. He has delivered me from all of that. Aren't you tired of the little rat race you're living? Wouldn't you like to have the deliverance of God? For I have found in Him what you grope for in your useless activity, in your powerless gods. I have found it in Jesus Christ. And yes, I love him more than you. I love him more than I love you. Oh, that we'd be willing and ready to declare that and show it to those around us. I love my Savior most of all. And this is really all the Jerusalem Council came to conclude. You're now different people. You're no longer Jews. You're no longer Gentiles. You are now children of God, believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Um, show that you're different. Go back to Genesis and fulfill God's expectations for us before there was ever a law. Go back to there and live how God intends you to live as the testimony to those that you've been called out from. And this brought great joy, brought great rejoicing. It was an encouragement to everyone. We're not saddling you with the law, but we are going to give you some admonition. And that is, if you are one of Christ, prove it. Not to us. Prove it to them who are not of Christ. Lord God, we do thank you for your love. And we thank you that when nothing could save us, you loved us enough to find the way. To make the way. And Lord, we rejoice that when our hearts were once filled with sin, and that you cleansed us. 
And now we, by your grace and mercy, can live into righteousness to which you've called us. A righteousness that far outweighs the law. And so we pray that you might help us where we have failed to show the world the difference you've made in our lives. Where we chase after the same things the world chases after, where we worship the same things they worship really in our living. Lord, forgive your church for acting so much like the world. The world says, aha, there's no difference. Lord, let it be said differently of us. We serve only you in righteousness as according to the intents that you have put upon man in the garden and in the days following the flood that we might follow the design you have for us in this world looking for that day we'll be with you in glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.